right, please remain standing for just a moment longer. Let me read the Proverbs that we'll be looking at today. I'm going to not read the whole longer section, but instead um, just read the ones that we're going to be focusing on. So this, the 30 sayings of the wise, is Proverbs chapter 22, verses 17, all the way through chapter 24, verse 22. So we're looking at 24 um, verses 3, and I have through 22 at the top there, but that's wrong. It's through 12. Yeah, through 12. So we'll be reading those. Verse 3. Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of foolishness is sin. And the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. And hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? You may be seated. All right, so collection one of Proverbs, remember, is the first nine chapters. It's written for the young man. The idea is it's simpler, it's laid out in longer, sort of obvious sections. You can follow it along more easily. We get to collection two, which is chapter 10, all the way into the middle of 22, and that's the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. And then we get here to the the 30 sayings of the wise, and we have this sort of encapsulation of a lot of the teaching that's come before. Remember, collection two is for sort of the, not just the youth, right, but for the young man, the man who's become a little bit more mature. And you enter into collection three, and it's sort of an encapsulation of the wisdom given thus far. And so you have this effort here. So this is a more compact version. The earlier ones are more drawn out. You'll notice when you teach somebody who's younger, when you teach somebody who's less mature, there's this need to draw out the details to a greater extent, to be plainer, to be simpler. But to somebody who's wise, you can take something, you can take a a concise statement and tell them, tell me what this means, I'll be back in five minutes. And they might have a page for you of things they've drawn out from it and go, You know, I I saw this, and then I saw that, and then I saw this. And so that's how the book of Proverbs is not only something that can take the simple and make them prudent, but it can take the prudent and increase their wisdom. Because there is stuff on the surface. There's low-hanging fruit. There's gold at the start of the mine. And as you go further in, there's more. And so we look at this, and there's these sort of, these pithy collections These pithy sayings, they are weighty and they're short. So this section here, 
sayings 21 through 25. It's a part of the 30 sayings of the wise. And this section, I've given a title for it. This is my attempt to summarize. Strength comes from wisdom and is for working and keeping. So let me unpack that for you. Strength comes from wisdom. The ability to do things effectively, the ability to make the right choices, the ability to do what is right, to not be enslaved to evil, all of that comes from the knowledge of the truth. All of that comes from wisdom. And so there's a power that comes from wisdom. And in addition to that, that power, that strength, has a purpose. It is not for the mere bearing. It is not just so that you can glory in strength. It is so that you can work, so that you can accomplish things, so that you can build things, so you can nurture things, so you can make new gains that have not yet been attained to. And it is for keeping, it's for guarding, it's preserving, maintaining the things that have already been attained. Wisdom is for that. So then we, we look through the sayings, and here's, here's the effort. I've given some effort to try to summarize them even shorter for you. So saying 21, wisdom works, builds things, it makes new things. Wisdom is strong. It gives power to do things. Foolishness is weak. It makes it so that you can't accomplish as much. You want strength? Beat out foolishness. Saying 24. Skillful foolishness still brings dishonor. You can work wickedness with marvelous care. And you will be a stench. Saying 25, if you fail to keep, then you are weak. You're a fool. You fail to keep. You fail to guard. You fail to preserve the things that have been attained to. Now, one of the sad things is, we live in a country that is in the process of tearing down the remnants of Christianity. How weak. And we fail to preserve what's good sufficiently. And so there's weakness. We are rotting from the inside. So that's the weakness. So let's, let's continue down. So let's now unpack it further. Saying 21, wisdom works Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and, sorry, no and, by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. In Genesis we're told, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, it was void, in the absence of form. The void. The formlessness, there's not a, a constructing, an order, and it's not filled. God then goes through for six days and he forms, he orders, he separates light from darkness, he separates land from sea, he orders and orders and orders, and he fills to some extent a little bit. But he bids 
that the animals multiply and fill the earth. And he makes man, and he says, to multiply and to fill the earth. And what happens with the creation of man is, there is the image of God, and the image of God is to fill all of the creation. And with that filling of the creation, those knowers of God are supposed to be increasing in the knowledge of God. They are supposed to be able to differentiate between truth and error by exercise to be able to discern. And there is a filling of the mind with knowledge. And so that is how the earth gets filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. It's by lots of knowers filling the earth with lots of knowledge in their minds. And they make culture that displays the truth of God. That happens on a very local level in the building of a house, the establishing of it, the filling of the rooms. Now, let me go into the Hebrew just a little bit. When you, when you read, through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. It sounds kind of weird as an order. You go, establish, shouldn't we like build a foundation or something before we build the thing? Somebody seems to have said that. And if we're going to build it on that foundation, that would be the proper order. So building and establishing, it sounds weird to have it be in that order. But the word built there in the Hebrew, you can easily translate it. It's commonly translated as to start building something. And the word established there can easily be translated as to set up. Okay, So sort of the, the finishing so the Hebrew, it's a little bit more intuitive. It fits more properly the way you might expect it to go. It's through wisdom, a house has the construction start. And so through wisdom, the starting of the building of a house occurs. And by understanding, it's finished. That's sort of the way it'd be easier to understand that text. And then when it's built, what do you do? You fill it. You put things in it. You make use of the space. How do you order the space to make it more useful? You put tools in it. You know what we do in the living room? We sit and talk. Let's have comfy chairs and a coffee table. You know, in this room, my intention is to work. I'm going to have a desk there and a machine I can work on. It fires electrons at very fast speed through a series of circuits. And so we have that. We have these rooms that are set up for different uses. The filling of the rooms with precious and pleasant riches. Do you ever look around and think about the incredible wealth that we possess? I mean, you have a phone, right? And that thing right there. You can send emails. You can call people. You can text message. You can capture all of your to-do things. You can record yourself and send it across the world to somebody else. The number of things that can be accomplished with this device are amazing. I mean, the, the, the computing power is greater than the computing power that was necessary to get somebody to the moon. Some of you are going, we didn't send anybody to the moon. It's more powerful than all of the computers that existed during the decade before that, probably that decade now, 
the number of cultural and technological riches and all the pleasantries, sugar, coffee, chocolate, tea, things that we think of as the basics, right? the stuff that people in history, typically most people can barely afford to eat enough. Right? And we, our problem is what? You know this, you've heard this from me. You've heard this in other places. Our problem is we have too much food around and so we can't stop eating. The riches that we have are enormous and that comes from the wisdom of the formation of Western civilization by the Protestant Reformation, the publishing of the Bible, the spreading of biblical doctrine that results in constitution, liberty, capitalism. That's on a collective level. The gospel going forth and taking the partial hold that it did from the Reformation has generated that enormous world-shaking change. And on the local level, I want you to think about the households of the nonsense, liberal, sexual revolution, don't really have standing families world. Okay, that's We look around, the norm is not father, mother, children, building an estate. That's not the norm. That type of activity is not the norm anymore. But that's the type of activity, the building of a house like that, that allows for the possession of rooms that you own with furniture that you own and precious and pleasant riches. That kind of lifestyle of trying to build a Christian home accords with the structure of reality and yields... Blessedness. But through wisdom, people start to build a house, and by understanding, they finish that. And then they move to making the space useful, and they fill it with precious and pleasant riches. Wisdom builds, establishes, fills. It forms households by covenanting with persons in marriage, having children, adopting children, bringing relationship with servants. It builds an estate to produce income. It has a house where all of these treasures can be and where hospitality can occur. This morning we talked a lot about Priscilla and Aquila. Their ability to be hospitable and to provide a space for Paul to work and to have spot where he could have his workshop to be able to share in dominion work and then he could do discipling work out of their house. All of that occurred because of hospitality, because they had ordered things in such a way as to be able to welcome him in. Their abundance allowed for him to be able to do more. Saying 22, wisdom is strong. It takes strength to be able to do these things, to be able to build, to be able to finish, to be able to fill. A wise man is strong. Wisdom makes him strong. It's not that a wise man is strong. In other words, it's like, you know, the wise man's a bodybuilder. Well, I'll tell you what, the wise man should exercise, and that's an act of wisdom to care for the body. Physical strength is something that should come out. You know, the glory of young men is their strength. Glory of young men is their strength. 
But wisdom makes a man strong. It makes him able to accomplish things. It gives him power. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. Not only does it give him power, but it encourages him to get more power, principally by getting more wisdom. If you're wise, you see the value of wisdom, and you seek more wisdom. If you're wise, you see the value of wisdom, and you seek more wisdom. And in getting wisdom, you increase in strength. So then you're a stronger man, right? And then there's an explanation for, or you might say because. By wise counsel, you will wage your own war. Wisdom enables the efficient, prudent, and decisive use of strength. It's efficient because you find effective things to do, and you deploy your strength consistently into that. You don't waste. You don't try to dissipate yourself. You focus yourself when you are wise on good things. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the knowledge of what is good and how to get what's good. If you know what's good and you know how to get it, the probability of you floundering around reduces. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what's good to do here? How can I accomplish what I want? A wise person can cut through that. You just look at the situation, quickly understand what the law of God teaches, apply the law of God, cut through the Gordian knot. Wisdom allows for speed to get things done. It allows for prudent choices. One of the dangers of speed is that haste makes waste. But if you know what to do, and if you're skilled at doing it, you can do it faster. And that speed is not just something that's likely to increase problems. In fact, the speed actually reduces the risks. Because as you do it quickly and effectively, you are just solving the problems and moving through. So it's prudent in reducing risks. And that is from a position of decisiveness. Right? We, we often think about risk reduction in sort of a hand-wringing indecisiveness. I don't know what to do. I'm not quite sure. That's pretty risky. You're sitting in one spot, you don't know what to do. You're just letting things happen to you. If you're decisive, the, the reason we're not always decisive is we're afraid we're going to make the wrong move. It's going to be big. It's going to be a big, bad, stupid move. If you're decisive and you make a big move and you're wise so you know what to do, you can be efficient and prudent and decisive. And so decisiveness is a marker of strength, a marker of wisdom, a marker of experience. And so it's funny, a lot of times people just follow the people who act decisively because they just go, well, decisiveness kind of suggests he knows what he's doing, which is why you can have so many people making a terrible decision all at once, just following people off of a ledge. But that's one of the things that we interpret the world with. We kind of go, okay, somebody knows what they're doing here. This is pretty decisive action. And that's because wisdom does result in decisiveness. It's not an infallible marker of it. But if you get wisdom, you will get it. War requires decisiveness. So in a war, you have to limit risks, be effective with the use of resources, and to be decisive, be fast, get things happening. 
You have to pursue when you have victories. You have to follow up. You have to avoid the reconsolidation of your enemies. In business, if you find something is working and you put a little bit of resources in it, you're going to get way less benefit than if you dump resources into it at the fastest speed you can when it's yielding great results. Decisiveness allows for an increase of benefit if you know what you're doing. So the wise man is strong. And he increases in strength because he increases in wisdom. Because by counsel, he gets wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. One of the things that the wise do is they find wise counselors. They seek out the wise. They want companions that are wise. And you go, getting counsel takes a long time. It takes a long time to talk through things. I'll tell you what, the more unity you have, the less time it takes. The more you agree and the more you already know each other, the more you're spending time around each other, the less context you have to give. If you spend a lot of time with somebody, they know you well, they know your life well, they care about you, they care about your business, they are covenanted with you so that you know that there's a strong obligation that's mutual. And so the household provides that context. And so does church life. And so it creates a place where people can go through things faster, get things done better. And those counselors, if they're frequently brought in, are able to help you to course correct in smaller ways along the way and avoid risk and help you to pick successful use of time and resources. A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wisdom, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. The analogy here carries on. How does he increase in strength? Because he's going to wage his war effectively. He is going to plunder the enemy. He will take the strength of the enemy. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that. He's already bound Satan. He's undeceiving the nations. He is conquering. He has plundered. He has given that plunder to his people. And he sent strength to us. He sent the plundered power to us at Pentecost, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual gifts that we have are a treasury from heaven. They are resources for us to wage war. And we have been given some wisdom because we have been given the knowledge of God. And God is the good. And as we study His law, which teaches us the way we ought to go, we increase in strength day by day. We take in the Word of God, the bread of life, And we grow in strength. And we seek to spend time with each other in covenanted relationship and advise each other. You want to open up to rebuke. You want to encourage correction and counsel from others so that you have a multitude of counselors that help to keep you safe. Saying 23, foolishness is weak. Hopefully by considering the strength of wisdom foolishness, the weakness of it is sort of obvious now. The, the, the way that wisdom gives strength, foolishness is not going to give any of that strength. And wisdom is too lofty for the fool, so he doesn't increase in strength because it's not worth reaching for. He does not want to pursue it. He does not get it. It's too lofty for him. He doesn't aspire to get wisdom. He aspires to something else. What does he want? Pleasure, power, money, whatever, but not the knowledge of God. And so he will not get it. He does not increase in strength. 
Instead, there is dissipation. He does not open his mouth in the gate. What is the gate? The gate is the public place of power. Right? It's where rule occurs. It is in the gate in the Near East cities, especially Hebrew cities, what you have is a space near the gate where the marketplace is, where the courts meet. This is the place of public rule, public business, transaction. This place, the gate, is where trials happen, where council meetings happen, where debates happen. The fool won't have wisdom, and so he won't have powerful things to say, and he will begin to have his mouth shut. The wise can shut the mouths of fools. They can shut the mouths of the obstreperous. They can shut the mouths of those who oppose falsehood because they can show them to be self-contradictory and they can show them to be in error. They can deconstruct. The wise can deconstruct the false philosophies of the foolish. Wisdom is too lofty for the fool. He doesn't reach for it. And after a while, he learns not to open his mouth in the place of public discourse. That is the power of wisdom. It makes the fool shut his mouth. So how good of a job have preachers in America been doing at shutting the mouths of fools? Why? Is it because we lost the word of God? There are more Bibles in houses now than any other time in history. It's because there aren't any resources. It's too hard to search the internet to figure out the meaning of some Hebrew or Greek word. No. It's cowardice. Cowardice has filled the pulpits of America, and as a result, people won't say sodomy is sin. People won't say the trans movement is destroying the idea of the differentiation between man and woman, which was created by God. They won't say things like the government has limits because they're afraid of losing their tax exemption. And so preaching what the Bible has to say about government is something that they are afraid of. Pietism, where the individual goes into a closet and worships God with private worship, but nothing else is what American evangelicalism has been filled with. Not the rule of the household as a Christian domain. Not the rule of the church as a place that is to be carefully guarded for doctrine, worship, and government. And not the state as a tool to resist evil, both tables of the law. The fear of preaching those things has made it so that instead of the fool having his mouth shut, Christians have their mouths shut. And so there is a requirement. Why is it that they are cowards? Why are they weak? What gives strength? The weakness comes from a not desiring to deal with the deeper doctrinal questions. How has that happened? It has happened because dealing with the details of doctrine is not what pays the bills. Doctrine divides. You ever heard of a Scottish revival? Scottish revival. Preacher gets up, preaches some biblical doctrine that people were afraid to preach for a while. Half the church leaves. That's a Scottish revival. There need to be a lot of Scottish revivals in America. That process allows for the consolidation of truth and makes the witness a lot more powerful. The desire to build mega churches, mega fast, so there can be mega dollars, is a major reason why 
this continues to happen. Preachers have got to be bold. Otherwise, fools speak in the gate and the wise don't. And wisdom leaves the land. Saying 24, skillful foolishness still brings dishonor. Skillful foolishness still brings dishonor. He who plots to do evil will be called, here's the literal language, right? A master of evil plots. If you plot to do evil, great, you'll get a reputation for being a master of evil plots. Now, people can try to hide being bad for a while, but it typically comes out. That's the way things tend to go. You could try to pretend to be good, but hypocrisy, God loves to uncover. So if you plot to do evil, what is this in contrast to? What about the counsel of the righteous that gather to plan for war? The safety of that counsel, right? That's one side. And then, okay, well, what if you instead are planning and plotting to do evil? Great, you'll be called a master of evil plots. The devising, you might say plotting or scheming of foolishness is sin. And the scoffer is an abomination to men. In other words, whereas one counsel is pleasing to God and man, the other counsel is displeasing to God and man. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. People praise wickedness to the skies. They do. They do. They really do. Until they don't. When does it stop? How long did it take for the population of the Soviet Union to realize that the Soviet government was awful? The czar is bad. The czar is bad. Tear down the czar. Hooray. We have Soviet republics. It was really fast that everybody hated the change. It was a really long time until the change stopped. Because people were cowardly. How many people do you know that think our government's doing well? Zero. I have zero. Do you have any? You know anybody who thinks the government's doing well? Somebody you talk to and they go, yeah, I think this is doing, we're doing, this is great. More debt. Let's do this. 31 trillion, that's nothing. How many people do you know who think that the moral fabric of the country is improving. Just how many? How many do you know? You, you, you talk to people, there's a general hatred of everything's bad. Why, why? Everything's bad. People are afraid to put forward a plan. People are afraid to talk about what to do. There's a fear of clarity, because clarity can be attacked. And so, if you put forward... Righteous plans, you will be attacked, absolutely, and people will hate it. But there is a hatred that comes from foolishness. There's a hatred from evil plans where people start to become disgusted with it. He who plots to do evil will be called a master of evil plots. The devising of foolishness is sin, it's an offense to God. And the scoffer is an abomination to men. The hardened teaching fool, the scoffer, 
It's an abomination to men. He ultimately brings disunity and alienation. He kills the hope for fellowship and unity. So when scoffers present their false plans, their wickedness, they attack everything that's good and beautiful, it makes ugliness. And it's you can't build with them. There's this way that they make it so you feel like you can never accomplish anything with them. You can never get to unity. There is this hopelessness from it. The structure of things is such that if we boldly proclaim the truth, if we argue with wickedness, if we show other people that falsehood is false, if we do that boldly, the tendency is towards the gathering and perfecting of the church. The tendency is towards the empowering of the church, the subduing of wickedness. Do you think that things are harder and more hopeless now than they were in the Reformation? I mean, just to be honest for a second, do we think that things are worse right now than they were in 1517 when the Inquisition was very efficient? Is it going to be harder to see Reformation now, or was it harder in 1517? Our enemies destroy themselves, and they destroy their own reputations. Skillful foolishness still brings dishonor. You can be skilled at it. You can plot. You can think really hard about how to accomplish wicked ends. It's still going to bring dishonor to you. Saying 25, if you fail to keep, then you are weak. You're a fool. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Let's think about this for a second. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Sometimes we think of ourselves as strong, we think of ourselves as having power, we think of ourselves as competent and able, and something hard happens. And we do badly. And we go, I would have done really well, except for this hard thing. Is that, is that, what, you, is that what you think life is like? It's not, there's just no, no thorns and thistles. There's not going to be strife. It's not going to be hard things. If you have strength, you have strength to deal with adversity. A brother is for adversity. You need a brother to help to carry you and to give his strength to you so you can work through things, so you can deal with things, so you can overcome problems. If you faint in the day of adversity, and no, you're not strong. So let's, let's, make this, let's make this into particulars. If you faint, first commandment, when you run into a doctrinal dispute and you don't want to argue about it and so you just back down, Oh, adversity came. Didn't fight over it. Weak. Second commandment. Somebody wants to worship God in a way that's not appointed in his word. I didn't want to deal with it. Didn't want to hurt their feelings. Didn't want to fight over the worship. Weak. Great. Let idolatry reign. Somebody's blaspheming in my presence. Taking the Lord's name in vain. I didn't want to rebuke them because I didn't want them to feel bad. Weak. Sabbath breaking all around me. Didn't want to tell anybody to keep the Sabbath. Weak. This person in authority over me, fifth commandment, 
is doing stuff that makes it so that it's hard for me to follow the authority. But I, rather than honoring them, just kind of gave up. Weak. I was really mad because this person did a really annoying thing, and so I blew up at them. Weak. Sixth commandment. There was a temptation in front of me, and so I committed sexual sin. Seventh commandment. Weak. I had stuff I needed to do. I had property in front of me that was easily accessible, so I took it. Eighth commandment. Weak. Ninth commandment. There was a truth-telling obligation I had, or it was hard to say the truth. It was going to cost me something. I didn't want to deal with it. Weak. And I'm really dissatisfied, and rather than trying to grow in the knowledge of God, 10th commandment, and seeking to apply that knowledge to help to change my desires, I went into escapism. Played games, watched things, whatever, to avoid dealing with the pain. Weak. We've all done all of those things. So, we're weak. We need the strength of God. We need more wisdom. And if you have any wisdom, if you're a strong man at all, you want to increase your strength to overcome and subdue those things. The willingness to deal with the day of adversity, to deal with trouble, to deal with battle, that's what strength is for. If you have strength in the day of adversity, I assure you there will be lots of other people who are fainting around you. Maybe you can be the one to hold them up. Some of the people, they feel low on strength. They're drawn toward death. They want to give up. If you have strength, you can deliver them. Do you have any idea the amount of trouble that you can prevent if you keep your head about you when everybody else is losing theirs? People are looking for somebody decisive when things go bad. The amount of trouble you can save is enormous. People that are on the way to do something stupid that's going to get them destroyed, hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you have strength and you can tell them, no, not now, hold, stop. This is not the time yet. Your strength, your decisiveness, your knowing when to go and when to stop. But if, in the day of adversity, you faint, if, in the day of adversity, you don't deliver those that are drawn towards death, if, in the day of adversity, you just let other people stumble to the slaughter, It's really easy afterwards to say, you know, I didn't really know what was happening. But here's the thing. God knows that you did. He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? God keeps our souls, and he requires us to use wisdom to keep, to guard. The guarding element in the face of adversity to prevent the destruction of things that have been built, the things that have been accomplished, 
So what we have to do is we have to gain sufficient wisdom to know when to fight and when not to fight. To know how to fight. To know when to go and rescue and to know when to hold others back. I want to read to you a passage that is from the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. book of Luke in chapter 14 says the following. Chapter 14, verse 25. Now multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You have to value Christ more than any of those other things. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You have to be willing to give up other things. You have to see God is more valuable. Christ is more valuable than anything else. And you have to be willing to take on suffering. Now we're going to be inconsistent in that. The willingness to take on suffering, to die to self, in order to have spiritual life. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Wisdom starts building a house and finishes. Verse 30, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We are to buy wisdom and not sell it. We are to buy it with everything else. If we have wisdom, we have strength to do everything else that is needful. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the other blessings come. God provides for his. He gives the daily bread and he gives strength. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. The comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. I'm going to say one more thing then. Go to the conclusion page. It's page three. Here's the summation of all that. If you're wise, you will build, you will establish, and you will fill. If you're wise, you're strong. You'll increase in strength. You'll put strength to efficient, prudent, and decisive use. And you will seek gain. You will seek to gain wise confederates. In other words, you'll seek to gain wise covenanted brothers and advisors. <coughs> if you're a fool, you're weak. And you will not engage in public controversy effectively, but will snipe from the shadows. You will hone skills to plot, scheme, and devise evil and to scoff at what's good. But you will lose your allies over time and your honor. 
and you will cause others to diminish in usefulness. If you are wise and have strength, then remember that part of the purpose of strength is to overcome adversity. If the hard days are the days when your strength fails, then you will have then you have little strength, you have little of it, and thus little wisdom. Wisdom decisively strikes out to complete tasks in the face of danger. Wisdom drives out to save. Wisdom grabs hold of those who are threatened in order to preserve them. A failure to save or preserve because of a lack of strength is not the same as not knowing that they were in danger. God knows when we're aware of our duty, but fail from weakness. So seek for more wisdom so you have more strength, so you have strength to do the things that you already know you are failing to do. That's the good life. So dig in. Get the word. All right.